Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series where we are exploring topics related to autoimmune diseases to help patients and their loved ones understand and manage their condition. And today's episode focuses on coping strategies for any person who has an autoimmune disease. And today we welcome Dr. Delisha Carpenter, who's an assistant professor at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy in the Division of Pharmaceutical Outcomes and Policy. Quite frankly, Delisha Carpenter and I have done all sorts of studies together in the past, and she really is a wonderful expert in the whole question of how best to encourage caregivers and friends and patients to cope with their disease. So welcome, Delisha. Thank you, Dr. Falk. People who have autoimmune disease have to figure out how to live with their condition. There are periods of time when they feel great. There are periods of time when they feel crudgy. There are periods of time they're on therapy. There are periods of time they're off therapy. And really, there are uh, a number of potential coping strategies. What advice in general do you give them? Well, there's a number of behaviors that patients can engage in to help cope with their disease. And these are collectively referred to as self-management strategies. And in the area of autoimmune disease, what's been studied um, and shown to be effective at helping patients cope with their illness are engaging in eight specific types of behaviors. And these are related to keeping your medical appointments, to monitoring your symptoms and side effects from your medications, or reporting those to doctors if you have issues. It's uh, proper diet, engaging in exercise to the extent that you can, uh, avoiding infections, and uh, taking your medications as prescribed. So engaging in all of those behaviors can help people manage their disease uh, in different times, especially if you're experiencing an exacerbation. Wow. That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) So let's take one of these at a time. Okay. Keeping appointments. That can be hard, though. If you don't feel well, you could say, boy, it's hard for me to get to my appointment. And if you feel very well, you may say, why should I bother going? I feel great. It's really important to check in with your physician regularly to make sure you're on track with an autoimmune condition because they monitor things when you're feeling well and also when you're not feeling well. And if you have issues keeping appointments, there's appointment reminding Uh, apps available to help you remember if you have issues forgetting. But it is really important to check in even when you're not feeling well with your provider. I think it's also an important point to check in when you're feeling well. So as a physician, I can tell you that it's nice to see people when they feel well, because when they feel slightly unwell, there's a point of uh, comparison. I have seen you when you're well, And now I understand you've deviated somewhat from that sense of wellness. So making sure you keep in contact at times of wellness and times of illness is important. Right. And you can you can detect things earlier when they're just starting to get a little when there's a little bit of a deviation from normal. And so you can catch things earlier and hopefully prevent exacerbation. So that's another important component of keeping appointments. Then another uh, part of that group of eight had to do with medications, and there's several component parts of that. 
let's go through the taking medications and how you remember to take them, especially if you have to take more than one a day. So a lot of people will set up a routine where they take their medications or have them somewhere where they can see them on a regular basis. And that's what we call a cue to action. So if you have your medications where you can visibly see them, they're by your toothpaste when you brush your teeth in the morning, or they're by your breakfast cereal if you eat breakfast in the morning, those types of things can help you remember. If you're on a more complex regimen, then there's apps available that can send you reminders every time that you're supposed to take your medication. So if you have problems remembering, those are really great, and they're available for free. There's lots of them available in Google Play and the App Store. Um, so I would encourage you to check those out if you're having problems remembering. What happens if you're not facile with a smartphone and you can't have an app? What other sort of strategies can you use to remember to take your meds? There's pill boxes that are available that have the days of the week, so Monday through Sunday. So you can set up your pill regimen that way. You could have a calendar where you check off the different times that you take your medication. So it's definitely something you can do with pen and paper as well. Those pill boxes are really pretty helpful because you can lay out a week's worth of medicines and a loved one can lay out the week's worth of medicines as well. And you know then if you have missed one or two or three doses, which may not be great. Right. And it's important to document when you miss doses, too. So keeping appointments, taking medicine. Let's talk a little bit about exercise. Exercise is important for general well-being. What advice do you give to folks who may not be feeling great with respect to how much exercise they should have? I think to set small achievable goals in relation to exercise. So my mother has multiple sclerosis and she becomes fatigued very easily. And so we set small achievable goals like go ahead and lift your legs for a minute each day. Um, you know, see what you can do, move your arms around as much as possible uh, in a given day because when you're feeling fatigued and you don't have the energy then the tendency is to do nothing, but it's still important to keep your muscles moving. So um, anything that you can do, if you're feeling better, you can set five-minute intervals, and then if you're able to build up your resiliency for exercise, you can go ahead and, and keep increasing those over time. But if you set goals for yourself that are, I'm going to run a marathon or I'm going to exercise for an hour and you don't achieve those, then you can end up feeling bad about not achieving your goal, whereas it's just a little bit of exercise can help. I've suggested to patients that, for example, if they're walking, to purposefully walk two and a half minutes one direction and come back two and a half minutes back and to try to do that every day until they feel comfortable and then to increase the time to five minutes out one direction and five minutes back and move up so that eventually over the course of time people are walking 20 to 25 minutes one direction and then back. Every time I suggest that to folks, they, they tell me, oh, I'm sure I can do that. But just doing it every day a little bit at a time with very tiny increments of uh, how much work somebody's doing turns out to be really a useful strategy. It is, and, and there's ways that you can build it into your day. So if you're going to go grocery shopping or have to go to the bank or run an errand, you could park a little further away than the closest space, and you can use that to build exercise into your day, too. How do you counsel somebody who uh, is 
really feeling crudgy to incorporate exercise into a day when just everything doesn't feel well. Well, I think it's okay if you're having an absolutely horrible day to take a day off to give yourself that break. But also, a lot of people will say that they feel better. Even if they were feeling worse, they feel better after moving around a little bit. So, you know, it's worth trying, even if you're having an absolutely horrible day, just to move around a little bit and get the fluids moving in your body, get the muscles moving, and see if that does make you feel a little better. It's interesting, though, that patients tell you that they can be incredibly tired. It's impossible to exercise through that. You know, one just has to go lie down and take a nap. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we've talked a little bit about keeping appointments, taking medication, uh, exercise. What other thoughts do you have about adjusting activities? So that's really important to listen to your body when you have an autoimmune condition and understand when you're going through periods of fatigue and if you're starting to feel ill to go ahead and go ahead and back off a little bit and give yourself a little rest. Um, I think it's also really important for your provider to document your symptoms that you're having. And so documenting those on a calendar, keeping track of them because you may notice patterns. And when you're experiencing symptoms and you can take down small notes on what you were exposed to or what you were doing that day, and you may be able to figure out, oh, this is something that seems to be triggering some of my fatigue. And then you can avoid that behavior in the future or situation. Writing down what you're feeling uh, on a regular basis is very important. Uh, And then to bring that uh, diary in, especially if you have figured out a pattern. There's no question about it. Sometimes one forgets that there are periods of time when one feels well, and then there are periods of time when one feels well, and you can't remember when the last time you were ill. That's all important to, to say, hey, I, feel, I felt great this month. Um, next month I may not, but right now I'm feeling great. Right. Writing it down so is, a good, is a good plan. And many times patients don't think that some Uh, symptoms that they're having have anything to do with their autoimmune disease, but they really may be. And it's important to have a, have a list or a diary of all those kinds of, of symptoms that one has. Let's turn our attention for a minute to the whole question of social support. And you've done a lot of research on this particular issue, the role of a caregiver, the role of friends, the role of spouses and loved ones. What have you learned? Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) I've learned a lot in this, and I think it's a really important and timely topic, especially with, you know, aging populations and more and more people being in caregiver and patient roles. For patients, a lot of times they'll report that they feel like a burden when they ask for help. Oh, I'm burdening my family. I'm burdening my spouse. And what we found when we talked to caregivers is that caregivers actually derive a lot of positive benefit from helping patients. It makes them feel good psychologically. It makes them feel worthwhile that they're helping someone and that it actually stresses caregivers out more when the patient won't ask for help when they need it. And so it's really important to keep lines of communication open with your spouse or your caregiver or your your loved ones about what your needs are. And and just remember, if you don't express what your needs are and then perhaps you overdo it 
you know, you go out and mow the lawn or you sweep the floor, vacuum, and you end up becoming more fatigued, that can end up being more of a drain on family members than if you were just to ask for help in the first place. So People want to help. They do. They just don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. There is the worry, though, from the patient's perspective of overburdening the loved one or caregiver that one is asking too much. What do you tell the patient with respect to that? Well, it's really important to have a frank conversation with the caregiver and set up what the boundaries are. Like, so, you know, what is too much for a particular caregiver? Because it varies from, you know, from person to person. And so to find out what those are, and then hopefully if you have a social support network with additional friends and family members, neighbors who are willing to help out, you can distribute those tasks that are too much for a particular caregiver and have them taken care of. There's caregiver burnout. There is. Like up to 50% of caregivers will say that they don't have enough time to take care of themselves. And the problem with that is if a caregiver doesn't take care of themselves, then their own health becomes compromised. And when their health becomes compromised, they can't help the patient. And so it's really important that caregivers take time for themselves every day, even if it's just five minutes to take a mental break, especially if it's during a period of, you know, extreme intense exacerbation. There's a lot going on. You know, it's important for them to take some time for themselves to take care of themselves. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. It's not a disease that's going to evaporate in a few days. It's going to come and go for a period of time. Sometimes patients and caregivers don't have a social network that they can draw upon to help them with certain tasks. And so there is a website available. It's eldercare.gov. And that, it, that is a place where you can find out about respite services. So respite services are developed specifically for caregivers, for caregiver burnout. And it's where someone can come in and take care of the patient for a couple of days, maybe up to a week, to give the caregiver a much-needed break. And these services can be found, again, through a social worker, through the website, through patient care organizations. Um, so if you're one of those caregivers that you don't have a social network that you can draw upon to help you with things, it's good to know that these services are available and they can be covered through insurance and whatnot. Caregiver support is just as important as support of the patient. I have always had the impression that spouses or significant others are have an extra burden. Uh, there are feelings of the burden of frustration, of guilt on both sides, the patient and the caregiver and, and the uh, loved one. Um, sometimes anger. When, when we got married, I didn't account for this potentially occurring, that I'm going to get an autoimmune disease. How do you help the, that pair of the patient and the loved one, the spouse, deal with those emotions, which sometimes are right under the surface. I think it's important for them to recognize that those feelings are normal and that cu every couple that's experiencing the situation where we're per one person has an autoimmune disease and the other doesn't, that anything like anger, depression, sadness, guilt, they're all normal. And one of the easiest ways 
to accept that is to join a support group. There's caregiver support groups and there's patient support groups. And a lot of people express that it's really beneficial to talk to other people to realize that they're not alone in these feelings and that they're normal. If it's something that is more intense and that it's wearing down the relationship, in that case, then counseling is often recommended to meet with a professional counselor. And there's counselors that specialize in chronic diseases and helping couples cope through that and be able to communicate more effectively in those situations. As a male, I will tell you that, quite frankly, a lot of times males have a much harder time with this conversation than do uh, females. They, our defenses are, are different. So it's important to make sure that the male part of that relationship uh, understands that they they need to have these kinds of conversations. Right. It can be tied up in gender role. So if you have a, a male patient who's feeling like he's not providing for his family or that he's a disappointment, then that gets caught up in the conversations as well. But that's where it's also important to go and find other male patients and understand that the way that you're feeling is completely normal and that there's healthy ways to deal with it and to learn from couples that are further along in the process about how they cope with it and how they prevent it from negatively affecting their relationship. You've done a lot of work on studying mobile technologies uh, and the use of these technologies to help uh, patients manage disease. What have you learned there? Well, there's a lot of stuff on the market, and so not all of the stuff is great. And so I think what's hard for patients and caregivers is to sift through all of these different resources and identify which ones are actually valuable for them. Um, one of the good ways that you could to navigate that situation is to look at user reviews and look at how many times it's been downloaded and you could see if people uh, what their experiences were with this particular app there's apps for everything so medication reminders appointment reminders calendars where you could document symptoms there's websites that are available where patients can set up um, the help that they need on a calendar where people can sign up for different tasks so there's lots of great stuff out there. Um, again, looking at user reviews is kind of a good way to identify which ones might work for you. And sometimes it's good just to download a couple, play with them, and see which one works for your particular situation. You've also done uh, research on the whole question of how young people manage chronic illness, and specifically uh, adolescents, uh, and how they come to deal with not just growing up, but also now growing up with a chronic disease. What advice do you have there? Well, adolescence is a really important time where individuals are taking on their own identity. And adolescents with chronic disease have an additional burden to take on of negotiating how they're different from their peers with a chronic disease. And then also are navigating with their parents who's going to do what when it comes to disease management. And so you really want adolescents to be in charge of their disease by the time they leave home so that when they go out on their own, they're able to manage their chronic illness on their own. And so it's important for parents to cede responsibility for disease management tasks starting early on and to build up that responsibility as the adolescent ages. And it can be difficult for parents and 
adolescents to have conversations about who does what, but it's really important. And if the adolescent feels like they're able to take on more duties related to their illness or remembering to take their medications and things like that, they need to be comfortable talking to their parent about it. Adolescents also can be uncomfortable talking to their providers about their illness, especially when the parent is in the room. So some of the work that we've seen is that parents tend to dominate conversation when they're in with the providers. But it's really important that adolescents learn how to communicate with their providers about their illness and be able to ask the questions that they have about their disease. So, so those are some of the key things that we've learned over the past several years. What advice do you have to the parent so that the parent uh, diminishes their parental innate drive to take care of their young loved one, but at the same time not be so overbearing that they're interfering with care. Yeah, I think it's important for the parent to realize that they want an independently fully functional child by the time they leave the home, and so that it's important to again, seed that responsibility. Now, during the doctor's office visit, it can be innate and it just be natural to answer when the provider's asking questions. And a lot of times if the adolescent doesn't answer right away, then the parent will jump in and answer for them, knowing the answer and say, this is what happened. But you have to kind of fight that instinct. And so, you know, if it's really difficult, you might need to leave the room <laughs> Jonathan, say, I'm going to let, you know, I'm going to let my son or daughter answer these questions. And then if you need me, I'll be right outside. And that that fosters that independence that you want your child to have by the time they leave home so that you know that they're capable and competent of managing their illness. And at home, you know, checking in on medications, um, a lot of adolescents will consider that nagging. If you ask every day, did you take your medication? You know, that, that's nagging. Don't you trust me to take my medication? And your heart is definitely in the right place for wanting to check in. And you are a check to make sure that, you know, the adolescent is managing their medications appropriately. But again, you can set up things like apps and things like that where you can be notified if the child misses a medication and only check in at those times. So there's definitely tools available to help with that. What other suggestions do you have for... Uh for patients or their caregivers who are listening to this podcast? So I think another suggestion I have is to really take care of your mental health. So people, when they're diagnosed with chronic illnesses, also end up at high rates experiencing depression or sadness. And to be aware of that and to be able to talk to your provider about that because there's treatment available. And it doesn't have to be medications, but there are things that you can do to take care of your mental health when you have a chronic disease. And so to not feel afraid to talk to your provider if you are feeling sad. That is an incredibly important uh, recommendation because I think Everybody who has an autoimmune disease at some level at some point in time gets sad about why is this happening to me and, and what are the best coping strategies. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with medication. It has to do with the things you started talking about, healthy uh, eating and exercising just become unbelievably important. We have actually problems with, with patients who become sad and stop exercising, stop eating, and, and that just makes everything worse. So encouraging that conversation becomes incredibly important. Yeah, and don't feel stigmatized or bad if you're feeling sad. It's completely normal. It comes, it, it just comes with having a chronic illness that you're going to go through periods where you're experiencing sadness, and it 
your provider is there to help you in those situations. What advice do you have for uh, patients who are working? Uh, how should they interact with their employers uh, with respect to uh, don't feel well today, I really can't come to work? Uh, and the employer thinking, oh, no, this person is really not capable of doing their job. There is this tension of wanting to be able to do one's job, but at the other time wanting to take care of oneself as a patient. That's a funny dynamic. What suggestions do you have? Yeah, that is an interesting dynamic. And I think that, you know, the general public lacks awareness of what an autoimmune condition is, you know, what exacerbations are, you know, how severe the fatigue can be that it will inter you know, interfere with your ability to do your job. And so I think that, you know, when you receive a diagnosis, it's, it's important to sit down with your employer and have a frank conversation about this is what I've been diagnosed with. And I think the onus for educating the employer is on the patient. And so maybe bringing in some material. So th these are some of the things that I may be experiencing. Um, how do we want to handle this? So be proactive with it. You know, should I start experiencing an exacerbation or extreme fatigue? How should we go about dealing with this? The patient gets worried that they're not going to be promoted, that they're not going to be considered the same way in their job. Uh, those should be also sort of frank conversations. Right, right. And, you know, it's not legal to discriminate based on your you know, medical situation and in jobs. So it's important to be aware of that. If the employer does become combative or or whatnot, it's important that they realize that there's legal action that can be taken. It's again, it's an open conversation mm -hmm. with the with the patient. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It's important for the patient to educate the employer as to what's going on and what the disease is all about. Right. Because they won't know unless they have someone with an autoimmune condition in their own family. Employer reactions could vary significantly based on how much they're aware right. of those conditions. Thank you, Alicia. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this series, you can subscribe to the Chairs Corner on iTunes or like the Department of Medicine on Facebook. Finally, we'd like to hear about what other topics you might like us to explore in the future. Please leave us a comment on iTunes or on Facebook. Thank you so much.